You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Obviously, China is very upset with the United States. The United States has what China would say provoked Beijing. They've got a long way to go before I think the American public's going to you know, renew their confidence in the CDC. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We look at the Republican ballot and it is full of these election deniers. This is a reality of Republican politics today. It's going to be very damaging to the organization and implicitly to Trump himself. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthews. On Bloomberg Radio. A federal judge tells the Justice Department to prepare for the possible partial release of the affidavit behind the search of Mar-a-Lago last week. The longtime chief financial officer of the Trump administration, uh, Trump organization, pleads guilty to tax fraud. The Biden administration is looking to ramp up the supply of the monkeypox vaccine. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, standing in for Joe Matthew this week, and we've got a ton of news to cover. I'm going to speak with Leroy Chow, a retired astronaut who is commander of the International Space Station about the football field-sized asteroids we don't even know about. We're going to hear from Congressman Chip Roy from Texas about the Freedom Caucus's strategy for spending negotiations when lawmakers come back into town. Bloomberg reporter Eric Larson is going to explain the latest, latest legal developments around former President Trump. And Bloomberg politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shinzano are going to look ahead to next week's primary elections in New York and Florida. But, of course, a federal judge in Florida ordered the Justice Department to propose within a week what kind of information should be withheld in the affidavit used to get the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, the uh, Florida residence of former President Donald Trump. The judge said, I'm not prepared to find that the affidavit should be fully sealed. We've talked before about how unusual it would be to uh, release these affidavits, but it seems there's a possibility that at least some of that information is going to come out. Now, Deanna, Anna Shulman, the West Palm Beach attorney representing the media coalition that wants to see that affidavit, had this to say. At this juncture, he is not inclined to keep the entirety of the search warrant application and its affidavit under seal, meaning that he understands that the public is going to likely be entitled to some parts of this warrant application and its affidavit. We're joined now by Eric Larson, Bloomberg legal reporter. Eric, really happy to have you with us, especially you were at the courthouse in Florida today. You know, we've heard uh, the past couple days it's so unusual for these kinds of affidavits to come out publicly. Can you give us a sense of how unprecedented or unusual this development was today? 
Yes, yeah, sure. You know, this is really not the outcome that the Justice Department wanted today. They wanted to keep this entire affidavit completely under seal, and they made their case during a hearing that lasted a little over an hour. And uh, they said during the hearing that it was unprecedented, and it was very unusual for uh, an affidavit like this to be unsealed, especially early in a case before any charges have even been filed. And, the, you know, they, they expressed concern that this could set some kind of precedent um, that the FBI would not uh, appreciate down the road. But uh, the judge said it wouldn't necessarily be a precedent and said it could be something focused on just this one unprecedented case. Um, so the judge really, you know, giving uh, something here to the media organizations, but really also to Trump. He had been calling for this affidavit to be um, unsealed. He still is calling for it to be completely unsealed. So now we just have to wait and see what information actually does become public. That's the big question mark right now. We won't know that for a little bit. So what is the likelihood the Justice Department sort of complies, but whatever comes out is entirely blacked out? Uh, reporters have gotten FOIA requests that are technically honored and it's entirely black lines. Is there a way for them to get away with putting essentially nothing out there? Sure. You know, they can, they're welcome to make that proposal to the judge. And uh, Judge Reinhardt, he did tell them essentially they could do that if they wanted. Uh, but he also signaled that if he disagreed with some of the decisions were being, that were being made on this, because he will have access to the unredacted version, the judge, that he'll just propose his own redaction. So it kind of seemed like he was sending a signal to the government to not go overboard on the redactions. You know, and during these discussed arguments uh, today, the, the Justice Department lawyer said, hey, um, we might end up making a, a public, a redacted version that this is essentially gibberish and isn't going to help anyone anyway. And the judge's response was basically, well, I, you know, that's kind of better than nothing. Show people what you can show them. Um, so cl- early in the hearing, he st- sent these signals that he thought something needed to be come out, be made public here. Um, perhaps, you know, just to call these concerns that there's nothing in it. You know, there have been a lot of critics saying that this affidavit is being kept secret because, uh, you know, it's going to there, there's nothing in it. And it'll prove that the, the search warrant was unjustified. Of course, others say it's going to be full of embarrassing information for Trump. So we'll just have to wait and see. Well, you understand these kinds of cases. Does it seem that justice has a credible argument to make that the exposure of this would hurt their ongoing investigations? I mean, it certainly seemed like a reasonable argument. You know, they're talking about what they kept stressing, that this is a national security issue, the early stages of an investigation. They told the judge, um, you know, there are uh, concerns that even if you uh, redacted the names of certain witnesses or FBI agents who were involved, uh, as he called them, you know, there are Internet sleuths out there, he said in court, that could still find out the identities of these individuals. And more importantly, perhaps, you know, it could scare off potential witnesses um, that have yet to uh, talk to the government right. and also reveal some who, who their informants are or how they're getting their information. Well, the, the one other piece of news uh, tangentially related I, I want to ask you about is Alan Weisselberg, the longtime CFO for the Trump Organization, pleading guilty to tax fraud. I, I've just got to ask, this does not seem to some be some small bit player. I, I mean, how significant was that development today? I would have to say it's very significant. Certainly that is what um, experts we've been speaking to um, have had to say about that, this expected plea uh, once news broke that it was, it was coming. So, um, you know, any time a, a longtime CFO of a big company pleads guilty to tax crimes, it's just frankly, it's not a good look. 
And when you add on top of that uh, the fact that there's still ongoing criminal case against the Trump organization in the same case as Alan Weisselberg, um, and that he's going to be expected to testify if the case goes to trial, to testify against the Trump organization, even though he's not technically cooperating in that sense of the word, he's not turning uh, turning against Trump or anything like that. Uh, but his testimony could be very damaging to the Trump organization. And then, you know, just on top of all of the other uh, sort of bad news um, that's been uh, that, that the former president has been facing, uh, you know, our sources told my colleague Patty Hurtado, um, you know, that that was one of the things Weisselberg took into account was all of the bad news from January 6th to the Mar-a-Lago search to everything else. And he was worried that he just wouldn't get a fair trial in Manhattan just because he's tainted by his association to Trump. So, yeah, not a, not, not a great day for the Trump organization in court today. Indeed. Thank you so much, Eric Larson, Bloomberg legal reporter, for joining us. Let's go to the panel. Bloomberg politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shianzano. Guys, I want to follow up on that last point Eric made on the Weisselberg uh, plea. The idea, and it's a very interesting story on the Bloomberg terminal uh, by Eric and Patty, that he saw all of the other bad news around Trump. He saw the Mar-a-Lago raid. He saw other developments that we've been talking about all week and wondered how this was going to go for him. Uh, Alan Weisselberg, the longtime CFO of the Trump organization. Rick, can you explain the broader context, the broader pressure on anyone close to Trump? Is this a broad trend that people close to Trump are seeing the bad news and wondering if in a variety of cases they should take a plea deal? Yeah, and I think Jack, this is a very good example because uh, uh, Weisselberg had been fighting this case for over a year. I mean, in other words, he was you know convinced that he could prevail against the government and their efforts. And then all of a sudden, at the last minute, basically abandoned his strategy that he had fixed on for a long time and decided to uh, start cooperating with the with the state. So uh, it, it is a great example of the fact that I think he saw the tea leaves. He saw continuing pressure on Trump from all these other angles. And uh, and I do think uh, he was probably greatly impacted by the debate around uh, President Trump and the search by the FBI of Mar-a-Lago. I mean, it's just the timing seemed very precipitous. So uh, uh, now we've got a whole different situation where the focus will go from him onto the Trump organization and the people who are part of that. And of course, at the top was Donald. The other pressure point I just want to touch on here is the idea of uh, jail time or prison time. Weisselberg, uh, this deal is for a five-month sentence at Rikers. That could be down to 100 days with good behavior. If not for this deal, uh, he could have been facing 15 years. Now, I know that's not what we're talking about when we discuss, say, uh, not necessarily what we're talking about with the January 6th committee, uh, if they're— as they have said, trying to make the case that January 6th was a coup. But in the variety of legal uh, uh, challenges for people around President Trump, uh, considering this is a a criminal case, there's the investigation in Georgia. Uh, Jeannie, to what extent does the increasing, in some cases, threat of prison time maybe shake things loose in a variety of these cases surrounding the former president? It's such an important point. Jack, you know, Weisselberg, 75 years old, and to imagine that he would be facing, you know, 15 years in prison at his age in a place like potentially Rikers or somewhere else. 
that is the rest of his life. That is a death sentence. So I think that does play a critical role. One of the big things that's being discussed, and we're hearing an awful lot about this Weisselberg case, in addition to that in this plea, is the fact that the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, did not get Weisselberg's cooperation against Donald Trump personally. What he got was his cooperation against the Trump organization should they go to trial in October, which they may well do. Some people are seeing that as a real loss for the state, for the city, for Alan Bragg. But other people are saying it's critically important you have Weisselberg's testimony as CFO against the organization. But again, it's not against Trump himself. So there's a lot of discussion about that distinction. Right. Rick, let's double down on that. Uh, To what extent does this really loop in the former president? Or is this, uh, should he be comfortable at all with the fact that uh, the, the testimony by Weisselberg will be uh, against the Trump organization, not Trump. Yeah, I mean, uh, sure. Uh, I think it, uh, to some degree, within the media, within the public, uh, it's a distinction without merit, right? In other words, uh, if uh, the Trump organization is found guilty of you know tax fraud or um, it, it'll have a negative impact on Donald Trump. Nobody, uh, nobody wants to see that as a former president. You know, especially while he was president, this kind of a problem. And this is the guy, by the way, who we have to remind everybody wouldn't, res- you know, wouldn't release his tax uh, taxes, you know, to the public. So uh, it's a negative, but it may not have any potential legal um, uh, 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 sides to. Uh, exposing him to legal jeopardy, and it could be shielded by the corporation. So, uh, it, 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 to me, in the public domain, it's a, it's a distinction without merit. But uh, obviously, there are a lot of people who want to see Donald Trump prosecuted, and uh, uh, my guess is they're going to have to pick from any one of the other four uh, suits that are currently going on. One other thing I want to touch on with regard to what happens in the public domain versus the legal process. When the news broke uh, somewhat recently, a little while back, a few days ago, that Trump was uh, taking the fifth in one of his cases, it seemed to be something that would play out on the campaign trail. Uh, Trump is somebody who said that only the mob pleads the fifth. Um, Jeannie, this is in this uh, story by Patricia Hurtado and Eric. Eric Larson, that that's one of the factors, Trump's decision to plead the fifth, uh, playing into Weisselberg's decision to uh, plead guilty. Uh, How much more should we be reading into? Does that, uh, I guess, shake the confidence of anyone around him if the president, the former president, doesn't have a specific legal argument to make in some of these cases? You know, I think it has to, and it's such an important point that they make in that piece, because it really has to play into these decisions that people are making. Of course, as you mentioned, Donald Trump makes a big case for many, many years that only the guilty would take the fifth. And then he takes the fifth. But the reality politically for him is his supporters don't seem to be bothered like that. As he said, he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't matter. He can say don't take the fifth because if you do, you're guilty and then he can take it. Politically, it doesn't seem to hurt him. But in the all these legal cases and these people who are facing these charges, it's got a way into their decision as to how they should move forward. And I think we're seeing that play out with Weisselberg himself.
I want to touch on one other significant headline today. Uh, the Biden administration is aiming to ramp up supply of the monkeypox vaccine, uh, trying to clear the way for a deal between the manufacturer Bavaria Nordic and a Michigan-based manufacturer uh, to finish packaging of millions of doses here in the U.S. Uh, it, it seems to be an issue where the Biden administration is off to a bit of a slow start, uh, got behind the eight ball a little bit. Uh, it, it, what what needs to be the strategy here? And I, I mean, is this headline of what they're trying to do to finish manufacturing, uh, Rick, uh, on these vaccines, a, a desperation mood or a move? Or how much should we look into this kind of development? You know, it's it's still, I think, something that we're watching uh, materialize. I mean, uh, I, I think this administration was off to a slow start on the monkeypox. Uh, I think we were reminded yesterday by the announcements of the CDC of having, you know, admitted that they got it wrong on COVID in the initial stages, especially. Uh, but it didn't look like they learned anything. I mean, you know, next thing up on the blocks is a monkeypox outbreak. And everybody was, well, don't worry about it. This is a very contained, we'll get ahead of it. And then now we're backfilling. So uh, whatever reason, this administration does seem to get off to a slow start on on these uh, health uh, impacts. And uh, and it just doesn't look good, right? I mean, it, 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 this is something that probably could have happened much earlier. Uh, and, uh, and so I think it's material. Uh, it, we're going to see just how much the monkeypox spreads and what kind of a public health problem it becomes. But this administration, I think, is is doing what they can to backfill right now, and 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 it's a good thing it, it, that they've come to this point. But we hope it's not too late. Well, let's let's look ahead to next week. A, a few primaries, uh, primary elections next Tuesday to talk about them. Especially interested in the New York uh, congressional primary to represent the Upper West Side of Manhattan between Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler, uh, two committee chairs, two uh, mainstream leadership-aligned House Democrats pitted against each other. Uh, Maloney multiple times recently has downplayed the idea of President Biden running for re-election in 2024. One of those it was a, a weird back and forth in her interview with the New York Times editorial board where she uh, said on the record in the interview, off the record, he's not running. Uh, they, they did not agree to keep that off the record. That was published. Uh, Jeannie, has Maloney helped herself? Is there any str- anything strategic about her comments about the president? as she faces this uh, tough uh, re-election bid against Jerry Nadler? It really was baffling because, of course, as you mentioned, that was the second time Carolyn Maloney had done this. She did this in the context of a debate, and then she had to walk it back amongst a lot of criticism. And then she goes into this editorial board meeting, and she does it again. And, you know, that is not where she wants to be. That's not what she wants to be talking about, or it shouldn't be. And, of course, we've seen the polls are reflecting that. The latest polls, of course, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they both endorsed Nadler. Uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer endorsed Nadler, much to Maloney's dismay. And now his lead in the latest polls have grown to about 10 percentage points. So a race I thought was going to be a lot closer, playing out a lot along the lines of identity politics, you know, uh, issues of gender versus issues of religion. That has really grown in terms of his lead over her in what was 
a really contentious member versus member, but committee chair versus committee chair primary, which is rare, especially in New York. Yeah, it's a, one thing to see these member versus member primaries, but you've got the uh, oversight chair in Maloney and the judiciary chair uh, in Nadler. Uh, really fascinating race to watch. And as you said, Jeannie, Nadler has a, a recent polling lead. Uh, that's something to look forward to next Tuesday. I'm also really interested in the Democratic primary to challenge Ron DeSantis. Are we going to see Nikki Freed, uh, the former agriculture uh, secretary in Florida who's running to the left of Charlie Crist, the former governor, former Republican, uh, who's running for the Democratic nomination. Rick, is there a national lesson to learn from whatever happens this race? Or are the Democrats uh, trying to figure out how to beat Ron DeSantis, not only in this race, but when he may be running for president? Um, I think they'll learn some lessons from this. And uh, Charlie Chris, who was an old McCain supporter, a great friend of mine, uh, you're right, as a Republican, now uh, running as a Democrat. And and I, I think one of the th- lessons they're going to learn is that there has been a big change in this race. Prior to the SCOTUS decision on Roe v. Wade, uh, uh, Charlie Chris had a handy lead uh, in front of Nikki Freed. And, and, and all of a sudden, that table has turned. And now... Uh, it looks like Nikki Fried is pulling about five points ahead. So in the latest surveys, and and I think one of the things when you read into that survey is she's got a lead amongst twenty points uh, uh, over uh, Charlie Chris, who always has had good support amongst women. Uh, uh, and I think that can only be you can only draw the conclusion that 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 has been a stampede since the Roe v. Wade decision uh, toward Nikki Freed. So uh, I, I think it's as much about what's happening in these states because of some of these issues, especially the social issues that these uh, Supreme Court has weighed into. And of course, then we'll see how that fares, whoever wins the nomination against uh, DeSantis and lessons learned for the future presidential campaign. Yeah, that's a, an interesting, important point, Rick, on uh, the the big theme of the these midterms. Obviously, it's tough for the president's party in the first midterms, uh, usually, but we, uh, we're, I guess, looking for signs to see uh, any additional motivation from women voters in these midterms uh, after that Dobbs ruling. Um, Jeannie, on that point, and I'm, I'm also curious, uh, one other point on this race in Florida— does Charlie Crist uh, have the appeal that helped Joe Biden win? I, I know he's spoken a bit about uh, DeSantis being a Trump-like figure, and maybe Crist is the known commodity. Uh, no surprises with him. Uh, it, can Crist uh, replicate what worked for Biden in 2020? I think that's his strategy, but this reversal that Rick was just pointing to and you were just talking about has been dramatic by Nikki Freed. And I think this Dobbs decision plays so much into that and the ability of her to generate enthusiasm amongst women who seem to be moving more to her side. That is a big story across the country in some of these races, and I think we're seeing it play out there. I think in the absence of the Dobbs decision, Chris may have a better shot of doing exactly what you're talking about. And one of the most recent examples is Nikki Freed has been out on the airwaves blaming Charlie Crist for the fact that a 
teenager who doesn't have parents in Florida can't get an abortion in her own state. She is blaming Charlie Crist because of the positions he's held from state attorney general to governor and switching parties, all those things that Rick talked about in his past. So she is really playing on this issue. And I will tell you, up where I am in New York, we're seeing that in some of these races as well. So I think the Dobbs is sort of giving, uh, you know, some exceptions to what we think of as the general rule that the the party not in power, um, the, not the party out of power in the White House should do incredibly well. Republicans likely still will. But this may get enthusiasm for Democrats in some of these races. Right. One other race I'm, I'm very interested in in Florida. Uh, Alan Grayson is running for Congress again for Val Demings old seat uh, seat in in the House in Florida. Jeannie, I just want to know what what you think about, you know, he was quite the uh, the bomb thrower, uh, had a big spat with Politico on his way out of Congress. What what would it be like if Alan Grayson comes back to Congress? <laughs> I've, I've got to think Nancy Pelosi is not loving this idea. as are right. Many Democrats. Um, you know, the fact is Grayson has such high name recognition and there's so many contenders on this side that he may be able to pull this out. And of course, he has not been shy about using quotes Nancy Pelosi. I think one of the mailers was, yeah. I love Alan Grayson. Yeah. And Nancy Pelosi did not endorse in this race. So it's going to be fascinating if he actually gets the nomination. Right. Coming up, we're going to talk to Leroy Chow, the retired NASA astronaut, about asteroids. I am fascinated by this issue, funding for asteroids, timing on a, a plan to map asteroids. That's going to be a fun conversation. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. To boldly go where no man has gone before. All right. 
right, the Biden administration has requested a budget cut for NASA's planetary defense programs, including a two-year delay to the NEO Surveyor Program, as they call it, NEO standing for Near Earth Objects. This is a space telescope that's supposed to find asteroids of 140 meters or more in diameter. These are the kind of things that would wipe out a city or even a region if they hit Earth. NASA has not told me much about why they called for this budget cut and two-year delay. So I wanted to talk to maybe an astronaut or a scientist, something like that. I'm very excited to speak to someone who is both. Leroy Chow is a chemical engineer and a retired astronaut with NASA who was commander of the International Space Station. Commander Chow, I'm very happy to have you on the show. Uh, My big question to start is on the NEO Surveyor Program. And from your perspective, is there a good reason to cut uh, the NASA planetary defense budget and delay that NEO Surveyor? Well, of course, in my view, with my interest in space and experience, I'm always for funding more space programs. You know, NASA's budget over the years has been running less than 1% of the budget and only recently in recent years has been increased to right around 1%. So it's really a tiny drop in the bucket. And so anytime you're cutting programs and uh, satellite programs, uh, whether it's satellite programs or human spaceflight programs, uh, it's kind of a shame. So yeah, it is a shame that uh, the budget of of this particular spacecraft is being cut. The uh, NEO surveyor was scheduled to launch in 2026. As you pointed out, it's out there to to look for asteroids around 140 meters in diameter, up to about 30 million miles away from the Earth. So that's going to be delayed. Uh, you know, overall, in the big picture, there's probably not a huge impact. You know, the, the big impact that, that wiped out the dinosaurs was around 65 or so million years ago. And so we could probably afford to wait at least a few more years. So hopefully in, in, in two years, of course, the chances of something hitting us is uh, not very likely. But on the broader topic of our ability to map these and to understand where things are, uh, I, I believe I've heard we're, we've got maybe 50% of these mapped at this point. What is our current understanding of what's out there? The asteroids, uh, things, meteorites that could hit Earth. Uh, how much do we know and how much do we not know? Well, I think part of the problem is, you know, we've certainly mapped some of the asteroids flying around, and uh, it looks like there's nothing we know of that's going to hit us in the next 100 years. That's uh, the estimate from NASA. That's the good news. But, you know, of course, we don't necessarily know what we don't know. And, uh, you know, could there be more of those out there than we know? And could be in orbits that, you know, we just haven't uh, figured out yet? And that's what the NEO surveyor is going to help us answer uh, being able to look a little farther out and characterize some of these objects. But, you know, you, there, there are those of us kind of in the business are in two camps. You know, one, hey, this is one of the most important things we have to figure out, or we could go the way the dinosaurs and There's the other part of our, our business people that say, well, uh, you know, we'd have to be pretty unlucky to uh, go the way the dinosaurs. Well, I, Commander Chow, I'm I'm curious then uh, on the big picture. Uh, uh, you know, I, I've spoken, for example, to Amy Meinzer uh, about uh, you know what this says about uh, cutting funding and delaying uh, a program that is not likely in any given year to lead Me? to a disaster. But I'm curious if this has a uh, a, a parallel, for example, to preparation for a pandemic, which uh, was not considered uh, a huge likelihood in any 
any given year. Uh, and uh, it sounded like you were breaking up, but if you're still there with us, how how do we um, how do we do the math on how important it is to uh, Commander Chow to to spend money on something that would be terrible if it happened, but probably won't. Yeah, no, that is that is the, the calculus that has to be done. And so, yeah, your your analogy to the pandemic is, uh, you know, apropos given the timing. So, sure, should we be spending more money on uh, trying to plan for things that have a relatively low probability of happening in a year or two, but uh, still we should prepare for because you never know. Uh, that That's the balance we have to strike. And in my mind, sure, I think it's I'm all for spending money, especially for space exploration and for better understanding threats to the Earth, uh, rather than spending on some of these other things that uh, maybe, in my mind, have lower priority. So, you know, it's, it really <laughs> it depends who you ask uh, where the priorities ought to lie. So I'm I'm interested, especially because you have a, a chemical engineering background. Why is infrared so important? What makes this neo surveyor better uh, than what we've relied on so far? And what's the role of infrared in spotting these things? So infrared, of course, is heat, and so you've got to. It's a little more difficult to do because you need to cool your mirror off. You you need to make sure that other objects that are hot, like the sun and even the Earth. Uh, are not interfering with your observations. And so, for example, the James Webb Telescope, what makes it so powerful is that this is the first time we really gonna be, we're really going to be able to explore the infrared uh, almost all the way out to the edge of uh, the Big Bang, you know, somewhere around 13 um, billion or so light years away. And so you've got to cool your mirror down with cryogenics and get it very, you know, as close to, to zero degrees Kelvin as you can. Uh, that's why the James Webb is in an orbit so far away on the, uh, beyond the moon in what we call the second Lagrange point, pointing away from the Earth, away from the sun, and so those heat sources don't interfere. And the uh, NEO surveyor is the same. It's going to be exploring in the infrared, and uh, that's going to allow us to see a little bit farther, I think, and characterize some of the you know, characteristics of these objects. And Commander Chow, uh, very briefly, I, it, it's not as if NASA's not doing anything. There's the DART test, uh, double asteroid redirection test, September 26th, I believe, is when that's supposed to happen. Is that something you've been following? What are you looking for in the DART test coming up? That's also very interesting because the NEO surveyor is to look for objects, and the DART test is to say the next step would be, okay, if we know where these objects are and we find one that's a threat, what can we do about it? Can we actually send another vehicle out there to uh, basically try to shoot at it and, and alter its course or, you know, break it apart. So that's what the, the DART test is kind of a complement to the NEO surveyor. Congress, uh, uh, Commander Chow, thank you so much for joining us. That was Leroy Chow, the retired NASA astronaut who led the International Space Station during his career. Coming up, we're going to talk to Congressman Chip Roy, uh, another person from Texas. It's a a Texas day on this show about the Freedom Caucus's uh, strategy when lawmakers come back into town in September. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. 
Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. When Congress comes back to town in September, they're going to have to discuss a measure to avoid a shutdown in October. The Freedom Caucus, the group of conservative House Republicans, has said, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We've got an election coming up in November. Republicans feel good about their chances of uh, winning the House majority, if not the Senate majority as well. They've called for a stopgap measure uh, rather than a real full funding deal to take us all the way into January when presumably Republicans would have more uh, leverage in those negotiations. We're going to talk shortly to Congressman Chip Roy, the Republican from Texas, a member of the Freedom Caucus and someone who often uh, complains that his party doesn't use all its points of leverage, doesn't necessarily play hardball. going to be interesting to hear what he has to say about the strategies that the Republicans should take. While we wait for him, let's go back to the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shianzano and just get a little bit of a a wrap-up. I do not get to interview astronauts very often. Guys, I want to get your takeaways, uh, including on this budget issue that kind of has been overlooked, the Neo-Surveyor program to find the large asteroids that could hit. Uh, Rick, give me your your quick analysis of what the astronaut uh, has to say, and, and do we have a problem with our government preparing for uh, maybe unlikely but possible uh, disasters? Well, I think it's always one of these things where you're in competition with limited resources, right? And so uh, we've seen a lot of great successes from NASA recently, you know, the Webb Telescope and other things that they've done, which are big budget items. And and so they've directed their efforts uh, to fund these items, uh, including the Mars mission, uh, you know, for out-year funding. So uh, now, when we're getting into these sort of near-term uh, 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 kind of issues that are uh, precedent to us, right? I mean, sure, we care about uh, asteroids hitting you know, the, the Earth. Um, uh, they they have to go back and, and basically compete from that same pot. And obviously, 
some of what uh, has been happening in the private sector with commercial launch capability has taken some of the pressure off of of NASA to 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 be able to loosen up some of those purse strings. So uh, I think that it'll be interesting to see what is put under the chopping block because I I can't imagine a situation where NASA is going to be upfunded. Uh, to add new programs, uh, uh, but I can see how this would be something that would be competitive within their right. own budget. Jeannie, what do you think? I, why why would the Biden administration not ask just for more money overall for NASA? Either it's a Democratic administration; they're not, uh, you know, calling to slash NASA. Should should I be surprised by this proposal? Um, you, you know, I, I think once they hear your interview, they're going to be upping <laughs> that funding, Jack. So, um, you know, I, I think they are making difficult decisions, and this is one of them. But I will tell you, you know, I have a very dear friend who talks all the time about Apophis coming, you know, passing so close to Earth in 2029. There's a lot of people very concerned about this. Astronauts or astronomers rather say that that's not likely the case now. But in the future, we may face that. And so the government is going to have to get us prepared for this. And it's not just the United States, of course. This is involves many, many nations across the world, the entire Earth. And so we do have to be make sure that we are prepared for it. And I think the Biden administration is going to have to make these hard decisions. Well, that that is one interesting budget issue on my radar. Let's have the big picture talk. We're going to bring on Congressman Chip Roy, the Republican from Texas, a member of the Freedom Caucus. As I mentioned uh, a minute ago, uh, it is the Freedom Caucus's stance that there should not be an omnibus big funding deal uh, this fall or even in the lame duck session in the winter. Uh, they have said, let's wait that out until January, when presumably Freedom Caucus members feel good about the chances of, of controlling the House. Congressman, very happy to have you on uh, with us. Have you gotten a response from other Republicans, maybe uh, Senator McConnell or other key Republicans? Republicans on, on on the Freedom Caucus proposal on the spending strategy? Well, we've certainly had a response from a number of our colleagues who certainly agree that we need to uh, prevent, uh, that is, reject the any Democrat um, efforts to jam through a massive omnibus bill or, a, a, or put even a continuing resolution into a lame duck. And, and for the average listener out there, those are inside the Beltway terms. But really what we're saying is, we don't want, to have, don't want to have this Democrat-led Congress, which has been jamming through all sorts of terrible policies, including the so-called inflation bill last week, that is uh, detrimental to the well-being of this country. Uh, we don't want to have them pass the next big spending bill here in September as our government uh, funding expires, nor do we want to punt this into a lame duck with a short-term CR where a lame duck would make this decision. Let's make, keep this simple. Let's have a spending freeze into the early part of next year. Uh, we should be freezing spending anyway because the rampant inflation, which then, of course, leads to the second point of what we're saying, which is that we ought to be reducing spending generally. So if Republicans are given the power in the House, we should be focused on reducing spending to the uh, pre-COVID uh, bloated spending levels uh, next year. So what are the chances? And of course, I I think a lot of observers still think the Republicans probably have the edge in the overall House race in the midterms. But let's say, OK, Republicans take the House, maybe even the Senate. Um, these kinds of funding deals need 60 votes in the Senate. They need the president's signature. Um, what more can you really get if they need to be bipartisan anyway? Or would you just want a, a, a CR, a, a continuing resolution for the rest of the year to uh limit whatever damage you may think Democrats would accomplish? Well, I always view this through a pretty simple lens. We have a job 
uh, our job and members of the House of Representatives, we have the power of the purse. It's the predominant thing the founders gave us is the body closest to the people. We are supposed to spend it uh, appropriately. That's what we're supposed to do. We have not been doing that. Either side of the aisle, by the way. But my Democratic colleagues are jamming through the American people. Massive spending bills driving up inflation. They're constricting energy, driving up inflation, raising the price of gas, raising the price of uh, electricity. They are leaving our border wide open where Texas is exploited. They are mandating vaccine, uh, vaccines and uh, forcing members of our military to get fired or lose their job. And they are doing all of this while blowing the lid off of our debt and spending and funding bureaucrats who are targeting Americans, including now 85,000 IRS agents. So, yeah, do I think we ought to pick a fight on those things? You're damn right I do. And I think we ought to stand up in front of the American people and say, this is what we stand for. We stand for actually restoring fiscal sanity and restoring the sanity to our policies on the border, on uh, the vaccines, on our energy policies, and stop funding these bureaucrats that are targeting the American uh, people. So, I don't know, we can all play games about bipartisan bills and what we need to try to do, but our job is to go up there and stand up and fight. Our job is to go stand up and to tell the American people we're going to fight for them. And I don't want to I don't want to basically and, concede before we even start negotiate against ourselves, which is what Republican leadership too often does. Well, let me ask you, you, you mentioned a few issues. I want to ask you about the IRS in particular. Are Republicans going to use the stopgap funding measure to try to maybe attach anything on IRS policies? I'm wondering if you could uh, try to demand something, if not to repeal part of the reconciliation bill. Uh, they, I know Republicans have talked about shifting from enforcement to customer service. Are you going to use the CR as leverage for anything on the irs yeah i mean i certainly think that's something that's possible um i mean now, now to your point in terms of functionality are we going to get something like that accomplished in september and given that they just passed this bill and signed it i wouldn't think so which is why my my basic landing spot is we should freeze spending in the form of a short-term cr into the early part of next year let the voters speak when the voters speak uh assuming that that republicans have control of the house we'll see we got to go earn it then uh, we come in and then we'll, we'll lay out the priorities as the people's representatives running the House. We'll lay out the priorities, send them to the Senate and to the president uh, if they can get through the Senate. Uh, and, we can have that debate. But one and, thing I'd say about the IRS agents is it, it, it's not about moving this stuff around. I want everybody to understand this. $13 billion is your current annual IRS budget. They just upped that $8 billion a year in mandatory spending to hire more agents. So I think we ought to go hack the discretionary side of the budget and say you're going to use that eight billion to go do your job in the IRS and not go hire more agents to harass American people for revenue. Okay, so that's one goal you have uh, for next year. Uh, also, next year, I'm, I'm curious about the deadlines. It looks like there will be a debt limit deadline uh, next year. Bipartisan Policy Center says maybe third quarter of next year. What should Republicans do around that? Are there demands they should make in exchange for raising or suspending the debt limit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, uh, the debt limit is the, you know, people are talking about we need a balanced budget amendment. Well, if you can't use the fact that we have a debt ceiling requirement to actually force fiscal sanity, then I'm not sure what you want out of a balanced budget amendment. That's our job, right? And so I think we should tie fiscal uh, sanity uh, provisions to that and say that you're not going to get a debt ceiling increase unless we can agree to, you know, for example, I'm just making this up a little bit on the fly, pass a budget, (laughs) Pass a budget that balances within 10 years and appropriate uh, to that balanced budget uh, and, and right. put in place some sort of uh, provisions that will require us to get inside those lanes and do our job. 
All right, right. now you can actually say that maybe we should increase the debt ceiling. But if we're not going to actually do our job, then why would we say we should increase the, the debt? Right. Congressman Chip Roy, really happy to have you on. Thank you so much. Uh, important to look ahead to September when lawmakers come back into town. And there are a couple key points there. One, uh, a debt limit deadline, uh, maybe requirements of passing a budget. But either way, you hear it from uh, one of the more conservative Republicans in the House that he thinks the party needs to play a bit more hardball when we get closer to those deadlines. Thanks again to our guest, Congressman Chip Roy, Leroy Chow, the former commander of the International Space Station, Eric Larson from Bloomberg News, as well as Rick Davis and Jeannie Sheehan-Zano. Great guests today on a busy, busy news day. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.